Every work team has moments of conflict and dysfunction. Sometimes productive conflict is a necessary part of wrestling through big ideas to get to the best possible outcome. But sometimes our teams become mired in conflict that is entirely avoidable because it's based in vastly different communication styles or different motivations and misunderstandings. Enter the Enneagram. The Enneagram offers not only self-awareness, but also curiosity and deeper understanding of others. I teach the Enneagram and consult with teams to improve their communication styles, conflict effectiveness, and self-leadership, all of which foster highly engaged and high-performing teams. During a recent team event, I heard over and over, this just makes so much sense when they looked around the room and saw who was fitting within each type. And now I know why this person asked so many questions or this depersonalizes some of the conflict we've been having because I can tell we're just coming from different perspectives. So now that we know where we are, we can see how we can get aligned. So if you're looking for ongoing support or simply considering an engaging introspective module for your team's offsite or event, let's talk. Reach out to the Nine Types team at hello at ninetypes.co or schedule a one-on-one consultation with me on my website, ninetypes.co. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome back to Enneagram in Real Life, a podcast that will help you go beyond Enneagram theory into practical understanding so that you can apply the Enneagram in your day-to-day life. I'm your host, Steph Baron Hall, creator of Nine Types Co. on Instagram, author of the Enneagram in Love, accredited Enneagram professional, and Enneacurious human just like you. Be sure to check out the show notes for more ways to apply the Enneagram in your daily life. Thanks so much for listening and now on to the show. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I am so glad you're here and I'm so thrilled to share this episode with you. I talked with Jessica Denise Dixon and I will introduce her a bit more in a second here, but I just loved this conversation. There was so much laughter and singing, which was not something I expected, but there were just so many great tidbits that I wrote down even as I was re-listening to the episode. So the thing that's so powerful about Jessica's teaching is that she uses the Enneagram with anti-racism and liberation work. The Enneagram is really powerful in this work because it naturally invites us to examine ourselves, to look at our blind spots or what our psyche doesn't really want us to see. And a lot of the work around the Enneagram is in understanding our defense mechanisms so that we can observe the truth that's beneath them. Jessica's teaching on this topic is incredibly valuable, and I highly recommend not only listening to this episode, but following her on Instagram and joining one of her courses. She's so experienced in both doing her own work with the Enneagram and with teaching and coaching others, and she's just an insightful and incredibly compassionate guide in inner work. For this episode, I have a few quick notes before I introduce Jessica, because we're talking about anti-racism, and what we're talking about is really getting space from a lot of the ways that we've kind of been socialized and and the culture that we live in and kind of separating from it in the sense of seeing it with more clarity and understanding and really understanding, you know what, I'm going to actively work against um, racism or I'm actively going to work against structures and systems of oppression so that I can see liberation and equity for all. And 
Part of that means that I have to really intensely look at myself and examine myself. And even throughout this episode, as as we're talking about some of these topics, you'll hear me kind of wrestling through things and thinking out loud and processing things. And I think that's such an important part of the process because what I want to you to hear from me today is not that I'm an expert on this, but that I am genuinely committed to learning more. So where I don't know something, I want to know and I need to know, right? So I, I kind of want to invite you also to have that sense of curiosity that we're we're doing this together and we are learning and processing and we all do that a little bit differently. Um, and so please hear that um, Jessica is going to teach us so much and also um that we're all still in process. So there's no expectation here of perfection or anything like that. Um, But this is a safe space to be able to think about these things and to wrestle through them. So just to define a couple of the things that we're going to talk about today. First, we're going to talk about social identifiers and whiteness. So I want to define those concepts up front. So social identifiers are the identities that we use or others perceive about us that are layered together to make up who we are. Things like social class, race, or gender, and and lots of other examples are examples of social identifiers. I personally found the book Difference Matters by Brenda J. Allen incredibly useful in understanding and deconstructing these ideas, but I also really love Where We Stand, Class Matters by Bell Hooks, which is about social class. And I think that's something that isn't often talked about in this conversation, but it's it's really, really useful and helpful to understand. And the second term I wanted to define is whiteness. So whiteness is not really about, you know, having a specific skin color or, um, you know, being white bodied or anything like that. It's actually this concept that is really upheld by other things like systems of white supremacy and patriarchy and these things that is the overall arching idea that to be white is to be without culture. So this idea that, you know, especially in the United States, this is really prevalent. Um, Even Toni Morrison says, in this country, American means white, everybody else has to hyphenate. So it's taking that concept and saying, you know, to be white is neutral and good and correct. And so everything else is other. And really kind of labeling others by this and, and and assuming that there's some sense of rationality or some sense of logic or some sense of purity that's connected to being white where and kind of assuming that um for example oh well they have an angle because they're from this culture versus I don't have an angle because I'm white so that's one of the ways that I kind of see it play out and understanding these contexts especially for people who are white-bodied like me, is about learning to recognize that we're wearing this lens. It's about learning to recognize it's the air we're breathing or the water we're swimming in. We don't have to go out and adopt these ideas um, or internalize them. It's very much a part of the system. And so understanding it, it allows us to get space from it so that we can observe it, so that we can deconstruct it, um, dissect it, and understand how much that lens is coloring actually the way that we see the world. Um, And so I think one of the most pernicious things about this is that we don't know that we're wearing the glasses. So um, in this conversation with Jessica today, we really talk about how 
this is very true in Enneagram circles as well. Like the assumption that um, white American fours are, you know, how fours show up in the world um, and kind of taking a different perspective and taking a different lens on it and getting really curious about how it shows up in other cultures. So it's just such a different way of looking at things. And I think it's so, so important and crucial because I really believe that until we start understanding this part of ourselves and and seeing these things and waking up to them that we can't move forward. And so I love that Jessica brings such a connected and community approach to healing and growth. So to learn more about these topics, I also highly recommend Jessica's orientation course, which I'll link in the show notes, but you can also find her other offerings there as well. So with that, Jessica Denise Dixon is a life empowerment coach who believes that when Black women heal, the world heals. She believes that the path to personal and collective healing comes through embodying our Enneagram and liberation work. Jessica supports clients through groups and one-on-one work with the reclamation of our full humanity, healing work that leads us to equity, justice, and freedom. When we do this work, we live more authentically with self-trust, self-safety, and fully embodied freedom. And this echoes into our communities and changes the world. And if you're listening to that and already feeling inspired, I'm so glad. So get ready. We are going to laugh. We might just sing a bit, like I said, and I'm so glad to introduce to you Jessica Denise Dixon. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you about subtypes. Now, subtypes have been transformational in my own Enneagram journey, and they've also been so incredibly helpful for my clients and my course students and even some of the teams that I've worked with. So with that said, I want you to head over to the show notes or go to ninetypes.co slash subtypes and download my free subtype guide. You'll get a breakdown of what the whole word means, the entire concept, all 27 subtypes, and you will unlock this new understanding of yourself and the people around you, and you'll have a new way to apply the Enneagram in your daily life. So again, head to ninetypes.co slash subtypes, or check out that link in the show notes to learn more. Enjoy. Hey. <laughs> Well, welcome to the podcast, Jessica. So excited that you're here. Oh my gosh. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. (laughs) Of course. I love hanging out with you because you are so happy and joyful and like giggly, (laughs) (laughs) which we will get to this, but in your course that I've been taking, one thing that I noticed that I really love that I didn't expect was that you just sing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I love it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I did not expect it. I'm like, you know, writing my notes or whatever. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, we're singing now. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that makes me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I yes. do. I it is a thing. I'm like I, my my Wi-Fi is called Human Jukebox. I, yes. love, I love to sing. 
Okay. <laughs> if we were to just catch you on a random Wednesday, what would you be singing? Ooh, that's a good question. So it's actually an auspicious question because I just – so I – with all of the things that I am, I am a fitness instructor. And I, for my body pump class, which is just a you know 60-minute class or 55-minute class set to music, I chose all songs that you could sing along to for this particular class. So just a few hours ago. And I have been rocking out and singing all the songs all week. One is It's My Life. Another is Turn Up the Music. <laughs> Um, you know, we got some Usher in there. We have, there's just so much that is, I'll catch a grenade for ya. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like, (laughs) we are the champions, my friend. Like, I'm just, I'm in it. I'm in it with them. I'm like, y'all can sing along if you want. I can't always tell if they're singing along, but some of them were like, I did sing. I'm like, okay, okay. It wasn't just me up here melting my soul to you as your instructor. But I mean, I'm sure that's like an extra level, like another layer to the workout, you know? (laughs) I think so. And I think that it helps you distract from the pain. So I'm like, always, (laughs) if there is a chance for you to sing along, just a little bit of something to take you off from the pain, to bring you joy and to get you, you know, anyway, I love it personally, but that's what I've been singing is my whole body pump playlist lately. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Yes. We are going to, we're going to like need to spy on that playlist, I think. (laughs) Can I say other than that though, Hamilton probably is like the thing Uh I'm most likely to be listening to or singing my shot. Usually I'm usually rapping that, you know, got to keep my, you know, kind of keep, keep myself spry keep myself young. So, (laughs) so Hamilton, there we go. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Okay. Well, that was not on our like approved list of questions. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but No, it's unexpected I, and I delight in it. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love it. Um, well, I think, you know, obviously we're here to talk about the Enneagram and talk about not only the Enneagram, but like what it's like to be your type mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. I find that we get really bogged down in these like you know, like these stereotype descriptions of what each type is. And um, I mean, I'm sure people who are listening thus far, if they don't already know your type, they might be like, oh, I bet I know what type she is because she's so fun and she dances around, right? And they would be wrong. (laughs) Um, And so I would love to hear about your type and how you discovered the Enneagram and that whole process. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So To start out, I am a type 8 on the Enneagram. A lot of people think that I am a type 7 because I tend to lead with joy. I have deep dimples. I have a boisterous laugh. I tend to just be happy all the time, which is an interesting thing because it takes me a lot longer to actually recognize that I'm if I'm depressed Mm. because I tend Mm -hmm. to just be optimistic and happy and I'm, I just kind of like slide into depression and then I'm in a deep place without even seeing how I got there sometimes. So it has its yeah. pros and cons of kind of naturally being that way. But the work that is mine to do 
is Enneagram 8 work. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. uh, and that's when people try to, people either think I'm a 2 or, or a 7 often. And I'm like, oh, that is because I am doing my work. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I am deeply committed to being someone who leads people in work and who is doing her own work. Mm-hmm. So for me, that is, it's a high, high value and a high priority. Um, yeah. I found the Enneagram because my background is in higher education and I was just starting to supervise professionals and I was looking for a different kind of professional development tool. We use things like True Colors and Myers-Briggs and that all was really nice, but I was like, I want something new because I was in my mid-20s and I was going to be supervising some people who were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. So I was like, as oh, a wow. youngin, I need to come correct. Like I, <laughs> I need to bring it. I need to bring it. And yeah. so I did a Google search. Somehow Google sent me to this PDF about the Enneagram. And what I loved about it was that it did not just talk about our strengths, but it talked mm-hmm. about our weaknesses and the things to look out for and the things that might be concerns for us. And I was like, oh, this doesn't blow smoke up your ass. I'm in. Like, Mm -hmm. I am in. And so, but that is not how I found my type. So I had this beautiful wealth of of knowledge. And I was like, I wonder if there's a test for this. So Mm -hmm. I Googled a test. And then I found a test, took the test, typed as a type two. Mm -hmm. And for maybe two years thought I was a type two. I always knew eight always came in very close behind it. And I was like, oh, I, okay. But like two and eight are connected and like, maybe I'm just like stressed out a lot or, you know, and I'm like, if, (laughs) if you are living in your stress point, it might not be your stress point. It might be your core type. So yay. And I realized for me that there was this, ideal self in the type two, because the type two woman, especially, is the ideal Christian woman. Yes. And it's it's the Proverbs 31 woman. It's the, you know, it's the, oh, yeah. the way that we're socialized in the church to yeah. be, mm-hmm. to, you know, be, and, and the way that the church valued being self-sacrificial and putting everyone else first and not having your own whatever, so it was it was more of an ideal that I was committed to being than yeah. a true sense of myself. And when I heard more women speak about being Enneagram 8s, that really helped. Mm-hmm. Partly because in many of the descriptions of the type 8 that I read, they sounded like violent, bullying white men that I knew. Sure. So there was like, what space was there for me to see myself in those descriptions, there was little to none. So when I heard women, I was like, oh, wait. Oh, that's how that could look? Oh, wow. Wow, yeah. wow, wow. And I finally landed in eight. And then so much made sense about the, I've gotten feedback on being abrasive. I've gotten feedback on, mm-hmm. you know, my intensity. of All these things that I had gotten feedback on that I really didn't know why or didn't really think about them before, but it was like when when eight made sense, it was like everything fell into place. Almost like those um, the videos of like the bricks that they 
I don't know if you've seen like those viral videos where they stand up bricks and then they push one over and everything just falls into place. That's yes. what it felt like to me when I found eight uh-huh. and I'm like, oh, and I avoided the eight because the passion of lust. Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. Like run from sexual sin was the biggest part of my mm-hmm. identity for a while. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of my journey into both finding the system and finding myself in the system mm-hmm. because, and I think that that's an important distinction that I want to make because often people try to fit a type on to who they are again, because of some ideal that they have, or because it's a better version of them that they would rather be. And it's un- they unconsciously don't know that it's, it's not true. You know, there's all of these things that go along with that. And so people try to fit the system on and you need to look mm-hmm. and find yourself in it because the system is just a system. You know, it's right. not, you are nuanced and complex. Mm-hmm. And I think too, my, after I realized I was an A, my friend was like, you might be a social, you might be a social too. And mm. I'm like, all right, let me look into instincts and subtypes. Yes. So I started to look into that. And when I read the the descriptions for the type eight, I resonated with each of the descriptions in any book or anything that I've read about it. But with the type two, I only resonated with the social too. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is not the same energy. Yeah. And the types, for me, it's such an energetic thing with the types. Like when mm-hmm. I even when I'm thinking about like integration and disintegration points or stress or growth, like it's about the energy that comes with that, that we need, you know, or that we, that we're avoiding in something else. Like it's such these, these, the way that these types show up and the way that they move is so about the energy of them. Mm -hmm. So um, I think when we are able to look at that, it's, it makes typing a little bit simpler um, yeah, but not necessarily easier because we are complex and, yeah. you know, even thinking about, and I know you didn't ask this, I'm just, I'm just going to keep talking apparently. <laughs> just do it. Go for it. <laughs> Loving it. Um, you know, when I work with black women, for example, mm-hmm. um, even just thinking about the instincts, you know, one of the things that we do is like to, you know, do you know your dominant instinct? How does it show up? Almost everyone resonates with the self-preservation instinct. Almost mm-hmm. every black woman that I speak to that when I run groups, it is a it is it's a well-oiled instinct, even if it's not the dominant instinct. Because in this society, we have to every single day navigate whiteness which as a structure of 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 advantage and privilege Mm -hmm. that we do not have we have to navigate that and everything that goes along with it which could be Mm -hmm. harm it could be you know microaggressions at work there's a lot of ways that it shows up but we know the self-preservation well because of it Mm -hmm. and you know so even that can there 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 has to be um a, a a wider um, conversation about typing so that people, yeah. and especially people of color, people who have and are living currently in a society that actively s- oppresses and seeks to oppress 
there has to be a space for people to find themselves. Yeah. How do you, when you're doing that work, because I know that you do so much deep work with so many different people, um, how do you help your people that you're working with, like your clients, tease apart to like, you know, what is coming from which portion of how they're socialized and how they are, they've been taught to act kind of like what you were just referring to as well with, um, you know, the Christian woman, um, all those social identifiers that we have, like, how do you tease those apart from the type when you're working with them? This is a really good question and an important question. And sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. I think that in a, in a society that values individualism, we can mm-hmm. sometimes think that I have to know the difference. And in more collective societies, that's not always a priority. Yeah. And so I, it just depends on what the person needs in the moment. You know, sometimes it can yeah. be really helpful to do the exploration and see, is this something that is sourced from outside that, you know, white supremacy or patriarchy or capitalism or these, these structures that, are, that they're putting on me? Or is this something that actually arises from within me that mm-hmm. is deep mm-hmm. down at the core of who I am? Yeah. And sometimes that takes time mm-hmm. and it takes care. And sometimes it's really just a matter of looking at, okay, how is this impacting me now? Right. Yeah. So I might feel very self-prez right now, but maybe that's not my dominant instinct. And maybe I got mm-hmm. it because of all these things, but how is that impacting how I show up now? Yeah. So it really depends on where a person is and in the in, in how we go in a specific direction. Because I think that, you know, it's always helpful to explore, but people can get so caught up in, is this my trauma or is this my type or is this who I really, who I am? And I'm like, yeah. that question may not be as helpful as you think it is. It may not lead you to the place that you're hoping that it will. And I think that there's, there's almost a part of that where people can get to like distance themselves or disconnect mm-hmm. because if it's my trauma, okay, that wasn't really me. If it's my, if it's my type, that wasn't really me. If it's all of these things and it wasn't really me, instead of being like, all right, actually trauma is something that we all experience at some point yep. that there's actually no shame from having trauma or, or, or even recognizing that I'm living in a, in a traumatized way, state regularly, mm-hmm. there's actually no shame in that. It means that I'm human and I'm doing what I can to survive, that my nervous system is functioning in the ways that it knows how to make sure that I make it to another day. Yeah. So when we can strip off like the expectation that this thing is going to solve the mysteries that I have about myself, we can really look honestly and just see how is it showing up for you today? Yeah. Sometimes I, you know, I do exploration, you know, to help people like really think like, when was the first time you remember living out the unconscious patterns of your type consciously? And it's a fun mm-hmm. question, but not everyone is ready for that question. Yeah. I love that spirit of curiosity that you bring to it though, because I find that that is the work. And and just like knowing you some and knowing more about the type of work that you do, like 
that curiosity and that depth runs through everything. Like you're not going to show up and be like, if you're an eight, you do this. It's more like, you know, how is this showing up for you? And I love that, that question that you're asking too of, um, because I've been working through that actually with, um, one of my coaches and I'm actually doing this type of therapy called brain spotting right now. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah. So, um, like, I'm the client. I'm not a therapist, um, but you know, you know, I'm, I'm getting brain spotted, I guess. Um, but uh, and thinking through, like, I'm seeing my type structure, like, very strong in a lot of the social instinct, very strong in the image and identity questions of the type three, like in these very early memories, mm. and it's so clear to me that. You know, I was never taught to think like that. Like that is my default setting in a lot of ways. Um, And also knowing that the Enneagram work, right, is returning to essence. So returning to Mm -hmm. what's beneath that structure, you know. Um, But it's just so fascinating to think about. The other thing that I wanted to point out that you said reminded me of something that you mentioned in your course. You said multiple times, shame, like when you encounter shame, especially in anti-racism work, right? So when you're thinking about concepts of like whiteness, white supremacy, like those cultures that you have been socialized in, in a lot of ways, I don't know if those are the exact terms that you would use, but um, shame means you care. So you're not going to shame people for it. Um, people a lot of the time carry shame and start shaming themselves and you're inviting, you know, me as the student to say, okay, shame is just showing that you care about this. So like, what else is there? It is a beautiful core part of our humanity that demonstrates that we are connected to each other and we know it. And so when shame arises, its job is to point us to where the fractures may be so that we can repair, so that we can heal, so that we can actually move toward each other and, you know, reconcile what needs to be reconciled. Mm-hmm. We can get caught up in shame spirals or even feel shamed by another. And some, mm-hmm. and, you know, it, and even in old social justice movements, like using shame as a tactic was a thing. And people mm-hmm. realize, oh, that only works to some extent. And Mm -hmm. so that has changed over the years, you know, because shame is the thing often that gets us to recognize we really care and it's getting stuck in it. That becomes then the, the issue that I see. And one thing that I like to say is that curiosity triumphs over judgment. Mm -hmm. And when we get curious about, wow, what is this feeling? Wow, I am in a trauma response, but I seem safe right now. What's happening? When we get curious Mm -hmm. about that, it opens up the world. And I think that's especially important for white people to do, quite Mm -hmm. frankly, to develop curiosity. Because when the norm that is assumed is you, you don't necessarily have to be curious. Whereas people of Mm -hmm. color having to navigate whiteness Mm-hmm. always are having to be very curious and to mm-hmm. to know a lot, a lot, a lot about 
how to be in the world. So it's it's like yeah. I have to be curious about how I show up. I have to be curious about how I'm going to be received, about how that person is going to show up, about driving through a specific yeah. town and whether or not, you know, I can go there yeah. at a certain time and whether when I should stop for gas on a road trip. I mean, just all of the things that go along with it that a person who's white may never have even needed to think about um, yeah. because you know, of this, this viewpoint, this stance that whiteness gives this perspective Mm -hmm. that whiteness gives, um, because of the socialization and the ways that it's internalized and the Mm -hmm. way it's, it's internalized here within us with, within systems, you know, and, and within cultures. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And then it sounds like your invitation then is to like, get really curious about that and, and not fall into the shame because I, I've felt that and I definitely know a lot of other people that I've talked with have felt that shame of like, I've never had to think about this before. Mm -hmm. And that can be painful. Yeah. Um, And I can let it be painful in myself and then move forward. I don't need to like go out and make everyone else feel it. Um, Well, and and to celebrate it. mm, When something new comes online within us, that is mm. worth celebrating mm. because especially when people are awakening to anti-racism stuff, I mean, when something new arises, there is a part that has laid dormant within you mm-hmm. and it is now awake. And anytime that happens, I think that that is something that we can rejoice in. Now, may there be pain? Yes. May there be grief? Probably. Is shame going to be there? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And what opportunities does that give us? Opportunities to repair harm when harm's done. Yeah. Opportunities to, you know, create connection where connection has been broken. I mean, there's so much that becomes available and becomes possible. Mm-hmm. When these parts of ourselves that we may not have known before awaken and they may mm-hmm. awaken through the feeling of shame and that curiosity is the thing that helps you move through it to not get stuck in the woe is me. I must be bad because I'm feeling shame. No, you feel shame because you're human mm-hmm. so, and you just aren't used to being a human. Mm-hmm. You're actually not used to just being fully human and allowed mm-hmm. to be human. Because even for white people, whiteness fits you into a box. So, so nothing is challenged and everything remains. Mm-hmm. And of course, the impacts on white people and non-white people are vastly different. And mm-hmm. it makes even white people small. Yeah. Well, I think I'm just thinking of the tendency in our in um, U.S. especially, but a lot of countries to like prioritize only the head type center of intelligence. And so people who have this gut knowing Mm -hmm. it's like, no, 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 don't listen to that. Or people who have that heart knowing um, it's like, Oh, you can't make decisions with their emotions. And it's like, no, that is your intelligence. Your emotions are telling you something very important, but we just discard it. And I just find it so necessary, which is one of the reasons I love the Enneagram. Um, too but so that that concept i'm 
just processing in real time. Yeah, um, it's probably going to, you know, come online later. But I, I was just thinking through that, that concept that you're talking about of like making like the idea of whiteness, making even white people small. Um, and like, obviously you're talking about like whiteness as the concept and the structure. Yeah. Um, the way that it works in our society. Um, where it is really keeping us stuck. Yeah. Where it's keeping us separate from our emotions. Um, and all the other things that we know. Like, yeah. we have so much that we know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of wisdom that lies in being able to look at life outside of this whiteness, you know. Yeah. And... There's, I just, it's like a whole new world. I won't sing Aladdin. Um. (laughs) (laughs) We'd forgive you. (laughs) But it it opens up so much. And I think it's especially important to have these conversations in the Enneagram community and as we're doing Enneagram work, because Mm -hmm. it can be so mm, tempting, the norm even to focus so much on the individual work that we have to do. Mm -hmm. And I was actually thinking about this a while ago and I'll share, I like wrote half a post about it and it was just like so overwhelmed that I'd never put it up. But Mm -hmm. I was thinking about an Enneagram coach that I used to work with. I used to do my, Mm -hmm. my own work in, in this person's groups and it was a white man. And we did work, a a lot of shadow work, and it was, some of it was around disowned vulnerability, Hmm. which is great. Mm -hmm. And my work as a type eight, right? Like we got to reclaim and like integrate vulnerability. Like it's just so important. It's crucial. It's crucial. Um, But I think about how I didn't get support in exploring what that looked like for me as a black woman in structures that were upheld by whiteness. And what it did was after so I was doing like this deep work, work, shadow work on vulnerability. And so after like, I actually had um, heart pain that had no physical no physical uh, cause, I guess. Mm-hmm. Everything was fine in my body. But every time I bumped up against vulnerability, I'd have this pain. And I was like, oh, my, I was so new. <laughs> I was just so new. And so, like, <laughs> this, is my, this is where my optimism gets me in trouble. Um, <laughs> I was just, like, so optimistic. I was like, oh, this is what it is. And, and, and as an eight, I'm like, well, of course it has to be painful to, you know, <laughs> to, to be, like, it's not intense. Like, I'm not doing it. Yeah. It's <laughs> um, just, just like, okay, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but I needed the support to be able to say, hey, in what systems, in what structures, is it safe for you to practice vulnerability? Mm. Because I'm out here just like practicing vulnerability and people who have the power and privilege to harm me are harming me. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it was just so painful to look back at that and be like, wow, I was so, I was so unprotected 
Yeah. You know, and this is why people who are leading people in the work need to be able to have these perspectives. Because if you're going to mm-hmm. talk to a type eight, any of the types, but since I'm a type eight, you know, about what it means to practice vulnerability, you need to be able to ask the, the right questions. Yeah. They may not be thinking about it consciously because you're the expert, you know, especially if they've really developed, a, you know, a, that you are a trustworthy person and they've let their guard down. Mm-hmm. And you're, but you're not asking those questions. They might not think about it in exactly the same ways, or or yeah. no to. So mm-hmm. we have to be responsible for the ways that we work with people, you know, as Enneagram coaches and practitioners and teachers. Mm-hmm. And we have to be able to have these conversations. It took me a while to realize, oh, I can do the work, and it doesn't have to hurt. Like, oh, no, that probably is like that pain in your heart. Mm, Yeah, maybe that was a sign that not to go in, (laughs) but to take a step back and resource your body. Yeah. But I I didn't realize it at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just like, all right, we're doing the deep work. Yeah. You know, I was all in. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I hope that conversations like this can be had at at a deeper level. Because it could be life or death. It could be harm, you know, like, and, you know, I, I don't, I still do deep work and I don't have the heart pain anymore. And it's like, <sighs> well, fancy that. Yeah. There was a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now I know. But I wish that I had known, you know, you know, especially a lot of therapists there aren't enough black therapists to yeah. To work with all the black people who are looking for actively seeking therapy. And mm-hmm. if white practitioners are not doing this kind of work, having a conversation about how you heal this thing without looking at how it's systemically upheld. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going to create like a situation where the person is being gaslighted, gaslit, gaslighted. Mm-hmm. Whatever the past tense is, or yeah. yeah. Well, and I, um, I think the the managing of your own reactivity, like as a practitioner, is so crucial. And I think that people don't really like white people don't really think about um, that level of reactivity around certain other identities, right? So, like. Um, I don't know. I'm just like, I have so many thoughts going through my head at the same time. Um, but I think that's why, um, and, and I'll be honest, like it feels really easy for me to just be resistant and to listen to that, Mm. you know, instead of going into the work that is actually really important and, and will bring equity and like, what does that actually look like? Um, and for me, one of the reasons why I wanted to take your course is because, well, one, I was like, I want to create more space for people to like be able to bring their full self in, in these conversations. And I don't want them to feel like they're going to like offend me or, or do something like that. Like, and I'm working on my own stuff. So I'm not bringing that in, dropping it on my client's lap. I absolutely cannot be doing this type of work if I don't truly deeply invest in it myself because 
it is going to be spiritual bypassing and just go terribly wrong for everyone. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Agreed. Agreed. It's, it's just, uh, (laughs) it's so important because, you know, I think about the, you know, people of color who are trying to get into the Enneagram, Mm -hmm. who really want to do some of the deeper work and Mm -hmm. they don't find themselves in the descriptions. Mm -hmm. And then seasoned teachers, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. or older teachers, almost will invalidate different ways of teaching the types Mm -hmm. that don't sound like a white male. Mm -hmm. And it does not leave space for people to be. Mm-hmm. What does a black male type four look like? Mm-hmm. They're probably not wearing scarves when scarves are not popular, which is what I heard a teacher talking about as they were talking about typing. Like fours like to wear scarves even when they're not popular. Like, okay, probably not. You're probably not going to see what? that. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I have, yeah, already. I'm like, wait. Wait, what? <laughs> but they might have this fantasy world about playing with a, 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 a you know, maybe a dead NBA player or their fantasy life. Might, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. what might their, 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 the ways that their type func- function and filter through their identities? Probably going to be a little mm-hmm. bit different than the oh I'm yeah. so special I don't I'm gonna wear a scarf while no one else is like that doesn't even come close yeah so there has to be space for for people to be in the exploration of that so they can come to themselves mm-hmm. yeah and I think I've also just observed um, a lot more like what other people might call like shape shifting in the image management sense and so they are like oh you're a three and it's like no 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 this is a survival mechanism. <laughs> so I'm yeah. not a three just because I shapeshift in these different scenarios. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. That's the thing. Be- <laughs> <laughs> Tell us the thing because I really want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually talking to a, a group of women of color, color last night. And, and often I talk about like sending in the representative when I'm talking to women mm-hmm. of color because we all have one. And it is like the, oh, hello, how are you? I hope that you're having a great day. Like the perfect tone that's just high-pitched enough to let you know that I am happy and I am a safe person and everything's going to be okay. So there's the representative that we often send in. And you don't have to be a three for that. Again, it's much like shifting into like the self-preservation. You might not even be self-preservation dominant. That is my last. And I still shift into it when I'm walking yeah. into a white space. Because mm-hmm. I need to be able to be vigilant enough to know whether I'm safe or not. Yeah. And what level of protection I and walls that I need to put up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like what does it look like for me if, as an eight to wield my power in this space? It might mean not saying a lot. It might mean Mm -hmm. being like the opposite of like the descriptions of the type eight, because I, if I know that that's going to actually cause me more harm, then I'm not going to be like the megalomaniac that, 
you know, like age yeah. described as like, no, I, that would be foolish. And that could cause harm or death, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. harm by like potentially losing, losing a job back when I worked, you know, and I mean, I still have a job at the YMCA, shout out to the YMCA, it's been <laughs> but you know, running my own business now. I mean, back then it's like I had to make sure that I said things in the right tone and the right way with the exact right words or else I would be invalidated. Yeah. And so, yeah, it doesn't being able to, and you know, code switch and shape shift, they are part of our strength and our skill, mm-hmm. not necessarily just an Enneagram type. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That is so, so very clear. Um, even like what it looks like for women of that type, mm-hmm. what it looks like. Can I just say like women type fives look so different than like the reclusive, like nerdy type five that is often yes. the description. <laughs> And it, I'm just like, every time I'm with one of my type five loves, I'm like, oh, you're like a bomb to my soul. Like you are not, and you're not that. Like, I don't even know how you landed on your type if you, you know, with, with those things at play. But I also, I, you know, in general, I also think that like a lot of us are not just like you could peel us off the page and, and we're like exactly that, you know? Um. I mean, I've definitely been told, you know, I'm not confident enough to be a three or I'm not, um, wow. or I'm too emotional to be a three. Um, yeah, that's so, why even when I'm teaching the Enneagram, I teach a few things. I teach the motivations, the core fear, the core desire. And then I teach mm-hmm. the types of reactivity through the passion, through the fixation, through the defense mechanisms. And I give some suggestions on what that might look like. And I leave mm-hmm. the exploration of that up to people, which is why people ask me if I'm going to write a book. And I mean, yes, but I think, <laughs> yes. I think that if I do and when I do, it will likely be on how to critically think about things mm-hmm. and how to critically think about yourself because you don't need a description telling you all of these things. You don't need someone to tell you how you're supposed to look as a certain type. If you can find yourself in the in the core motivations and in the reactivity, then that's your type. Who and you know, a lot of people get really, I mean, because the type three especially is often taught like the the white male CEO in a power suit. And the yeah. threes I know are like, that's not me, must not be me. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> That's not the only expression of that type. Yeah. Or like the the type three that just wants to work 80 hour weeks. I'm like, I don't want to work at all if possible. (laughs) (laughs) So can we we figure that out? Uh, And success is in the eye of the type three, you know, it's like thinking of it just as like career success or working hard in that way. I'm like, that's not... It ain't necessarily so in the <laughs> in the song lyric, you know. Yeah. Yeah. When when it comes to like at the beginning I know that you mentioned um lust, mm-hmm. the the passion of type 8 lust. Um <laughs> when 
did you learn what that really meant? And how was it different, I guess, from like how you've seen it taught or like kind of the assumption that you, you might've come to it with? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. It was, I was still in Florida, so it had to have been, I'm thinking about when I moved before 2015. <laughs> so a bit ago, um, maybe 2014. Um, yeah. I don't remember exactly, but I was, I like dove into Enneagram study. So I read like 20 books in a summer. Um, just cause that's who I am. Well, you read like a book a week, so, or I'm sorry, <laughs> more than one book a week. So who am I to say, no, no, no. you know, <laughs> not always, <laughs> but I, I think I, when I realized that it was more, it was, it was more about like this lust for life, this gusto, this, this energetic move to wanting more and wanting things more intense. Um, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. Yes. And it can't yeah. be sexual, but yeah. it's not, you know, it's not necessarily, it's yeah. just like every time I teach the type sevens, I always joke that, you know, they're not responsible for the obesity epidemic just because their passion is gluttony. You know, it's like much more <laughs> than that, you know? And so yeah, I, I do think that it's the excess. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Enneagram can, could, you know, so the world could use an overhaul in language, I think in a lot of ways um, so that we don't have to try to do all the work to, you know, explain things that people already have a concept of. Yeah. Um, and like, like type seven, the virtue of sobriety, it's like, no, no, no. I'm not saying that you can never have alcohol again. Yeah. We're not even talking about alcohol or substances, which we could be. That's right. a different conversation, yes. but <laughs> like, let's talk totally. about <laughs> like, what does it mean to be of sober mind in the sense of being grounded. Like, what does that look like? And um, yes, so definitely. And then I think also, well, I I actually love the virtue of innocence Mm. for for eights. Um, Just like the freshness of that um, and like the softness. I think that for a lot of people, though, if – the passion and the virtue are the first thing that they come across at the end of your end. They're like, what? No. Right. Oh my gosh. The, especially the virtue of innocence. Eights are like, what? So there's much like the defense mechanism. Like people, are, I'm like, defense mechanisms are the hardest thing to see. So don't worry about it. Like the point is you exploring how they show up because they are meant to be a defense. So you do not fall apart. Like that's what their point is. Mm-hmm. But the, between that and the virtues, people are like, Oh yeah, that's definitely that's definitely not like, yeah. in a sense, like the, the one thing that it avoids is like if you teach them that straight up, and when I'm mm-hmm. teaching it, I do call it the point of freedom because mm. for me, it is like these moments where you're truly free, like where you're just mm-hmm. like living in liberation, and mm-hmm. it may last a moment, it may last you know, a season, but. When I'm in innocence, there's something that is really, really special about those moments when I'm just like in pure joy, purely in pure presence, just like not worried about anything else, not having an agenda, not wondering if someone is coming behind my back, like not having to worry about where the power, it's just like this pure, pure, pure place. And I love it. I was actually just talking to another eight 
um, in my IG DMs, Christy, and we were talking about another Hamilton song, the song Dear Theodosia. And mm-hmm. it is the song that Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton are singing to their new new babies. And to me, it is like the it is like the poster child of innocence. They're talking about creating this new nation and what they'll be able to take on and how they want to do good for these precious little, like, what will you become and what would the world become? And it's just like, to me, like pure creation and pure, just like protection of the, of the innocent, like, you know, we'll make it right for you. We'll pass it on to you and then you'll take it on. And it's just like this, all like the hope of it. I'm like, Oh, it just like guts me every time, every single time I hear, I'm surprised I'm not in tears now. Um, but it just touches a deep part in me and knowing that, you know, as an eight, we really, we really want to leave something. We really want to make a difference in the world Mm -hmm. and our energy goes out so much because that's such a priority is we want to touch the world. So we have big energy that goes out and wants to touch everything and tries to touch everything and maybe does touch everything. Um, but it is all from this place of like wanting to make an impact, wanting to know that you're doing something that matters, that carries weight. And anyway, that is just like, just a beautiful, beautiful, I think representation of, of that. And as it's just a song that's being sung to these babies. I love it. I love it. Thank you for listening to my rant. Yeah. It's such a beautiful image. And I also think it's funny because for me to be able to say like, I love the virtue of innocence for eights. That's how, you know, I'm not an eight, right? (laughs) Because like, I'm not like, "Mm, I love the virtue of veracity. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, And I think because it just takes so long in this work. And I know that you were just mentioning, like you first kind of started identifying it in yourself, the the passion in 2015. So it's six, seven years later, mm-hmm. right? And And this is like the place that you're at. And I think that is something that we just expect to move so much quicker. Yeah. And it just doesn't. No. And it doesn't mean that all the other stuff goes away. It's just you're better at spotting it now. <laughs> yeah. And it's not supposed to be fast. Yeah. It's not supposed to be. We're mm. we're we're in our hearts, we're in our bodies. You know, the head tries to process things as quickly as possible and move thing through things as quickly as possible. And that has its own value. And when we get into the heart and we get into the body, they beckon us to slow down mm-hmm. yeah. and to be present. Yeah. And there's so much there that is awaiting that mm-hmm. call if we, if we answer it. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say for all the threes and eights out there is don't try to do Enneagram work harder. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I try to just do it as hard as possible. And then I'm like, oh, I think I'm, I think I missed it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm way far past the point here. It is too real, too real, too real. Yeah, no, you're, 
you are you are meant to do it slowly. You are meant to yeah. take it take it as a gift of slowing you down intentionally. Mm-hmm. And you know, getting to know other parts of yourself is not so bad. Yeah, even if it's scary, even if it feels like because the slowness makes you feel like you're going to lose something. Mm. You know, it makes you feel like, oh, there's something wrong with me. Like, why am I not? Yeah. And I used to feel that way. And I've had a very slow January and it's been lovely. I've like not really done a lot, really loved it. Just kind of like resting Mm -hmm. when I need to rest. And before when I've had seasons like this, my type eight was like, like just (laughs) (laughs) there was much ferocity um in that and you know it's like and now I'm like oh wow I like I can I can see that past me would have been like freaking out and current me is like because often eights equate who we are with what we do and if Mm -hmm. we're not then doing it's like wait I do I exist? Am I, you know? <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. um, it's like, yeah, okay, cool. I'm not doing anything, and I still, yeah. I still matter. I'm still here, still making an impact yeah. just by being a human. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Those I still sometimes would rather be a robot. I'll be honest. It would just be- like 100% efficiency. Yeah, just like 100%, <laughs> like no emotions, none of the messiness. But then when I lean into it, I'm like, oh, my God, I love the messiness because that is Mm -hmm. where, like, the truth really is. And uh, I'm just – I'm more complex than I want to be. (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) Right? (laughs) I think, though, I love type 8, like, coaches and therapists and and because it's the ability to be uncomfortable – can obviously be a challenge at times because like you were saying earlier, you really leaned into the, that pain and you're like, this is what it's like mm-hmm. to do any great work. But also the ability to be uncomfortable in holding space for people, um, like having them walk through really difficult things and you're just like, yeah, let's, let's do it. You know, we're going there. Yeah. Um, that's so beautiful. It's, I used to have a friend who would make fun of me because if someone was if if someone was saying that something they were going through something hard, I would just be with them and be like, dude, like that really sucks. And he's like, he thought to him, like I should be like trying to fix it or, or offering, mm. you know, something else. And I'm like, what what can I do besides be with them and acknowledge mm. and affirm how horrible that is? And, but that's part of like the superpowers being able to hold it and like mm-hmm. the depth of it and how gnarly it can be and how jarring and off-putting the, these these pains and these hurts can be. But it's like I can I can be with it and I can hold you in it and mm-hmm. that's what I'm here for. And so without acknowledging how much it sucks, like what are we gonna what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Yeah, there's nothing else yeah. to do. Yeah. Well, and I think that is a a great transition into the type of work that you do. So tell me about, you know, what you're really passionate about. Like, who do you work with the most and what do you, what do you do? Yeah. This is always an ever evolving question, but um, 
I do Enneagram work. I do liberation work and anti-racism work. And I, I support people in their embodiment practice. Mm -hmm. And so because one of the things is that white supremacy has um, dehumanized and disembodied us. And it would rather we not be connected to our bodies. And so in order to heal, wounds of oppression are wounds of the body. So in order for us to heal oppression wounds, we actually need to be in touch with the body. If the person, the white-bodied person is disconnected from their own body, how can they actually love black and brown people? It's almost impossible. It becomes a performative act, which often leads to harm within the communities mm -hmm. that don't need more harm. Mm -hmm. And so it starts from, you know, us being able to s reclaim our humanity, you know, to, mm -hmm. to get in a relationship with our bodies, to be in touch with our sensations. I support, you know, um, I primarily work with women, I will say, and I just love it. Um, but the work that we do is really looking at how, how are you shaped and how are you then shaping the world? So how are you shaped by your identities? How are you shaped by your Enneagram type? How are you shaped by whiteness and white supremacy? And then how are you shaping those things? And what does it look like for you to unravel yourself from those things? And so that you can empower yourself to, you know, maybe, maybe live a different life, you know, to be more to be more human. Like I said, sometimes I would much rather just be a robot, but humanity is actually where it's at. And when I'm in touch with my humanity, I love it. I, I truly do love it. Now it takes a while for me to, but that's part of the journey. Um, yeah. So I, I run groups and I do one-on-one -on -one work and I work with organizations who, mm -hmm are interested in doing Enneagram work or anti-racism work or both together. Um, because I honestly, like, it's hard to do anti-racism work without the Enneagram. The Enneagram provides mm. us so much around our own personal stuff. Because yeah. when we're doing anti-racism work, the things that pop up for us are going to be our types reactivity. It's going to be our, our dominant instinct feeling like, if I if if I lose privilege, then I actually am un, unsafe. When really, like losing privilege is, just, it's not really a thing because we we're still in. <laughs> right. So it's like a, it's like not even a, a, a something that people actually have to be concerned about, right? And so it's just like looking at really what is being threatened right now. It's all part of that enneagram work. So the enneagram gives a beautiful frame for being able to actually start to, to look at my individual role and what my actual individual place is in a more collective conversation. So mm -hmm. we, we are always just kind of diving in to all of that in those spaces. I love it. Um, and where can people find you online? Probably the best place is my Instagram. Cause I'm like mm -hmm. always on Instagram. <laughs> rolling or playing solitaire that's like all i do with my life so <laughs> right now i'm on a marvel cinematic universe kick as well so if you want to dm me about that you know and you're like a nerd like if you're gonna dm me about it i want you to be like really nerdy about it because i am 
so nerdy about it that, yeah, I mean, just the movies, though. I'm not nerdy about the comics, so you might be disappointed that I'm not nerdy enough, but I'm just giving all the disclaimers, but I would love to hear from you. <laughs> I love it so much. So Jessica D. Dixon, right? And then Jessica D. Dixon coaching. Yeah. You could come to I'll either. I'm a little bit more spicy on my personal page. So, you know, if you I like, follow both. I don't know. Yeah. If you like the, it is what it is. if you like all the personal stuff about me, because I am a human being, come on over to my personal page. If you just want business, follow my coaching page. Love it. Yeah. Okay, final two questions. Yes. What is a book that helped you, refreshed you, or shaped you in the last year? So can I say two? Yep. Great. One is Healing Developmental Trauma by Heller and LaPierre. It is based on the NAR model, um, neuroaffective relational model. Um, And... It is about how our attachment creates these um, adaptive styles. And there are five adaptive styles. And my friend, who um, she is a therapist and she's trained in it, I was processing some things that I had talked about with my coach. And she was like, well, this sounds a lot like this kind of adaptive style. And so me being who I am immediately got the book, listened to it in in a day Um, And was like, oh my gosh, how is this so me? And it really fueled some of the deepest healing that I've ever done in my life. Wow. So that is one that I would recommend um, that I process. I mean, yeah, that was so deep, so beautiful, understood things, had language for things that I knew were my experience, but I didn't know how to put them into words. So love, love, love that book. Another one is The Invitation, and it's a poem by um, Araya Mountain Dreamer, um, mm-hmm. and um, she also just made it into a book. But the poem itself is gorgeous, but the book I listened to so many times and have read so many times, and it just, like, opened my heart and in a way that I did not know needed to be opened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really about like being true to who you are and how do you mm-hmm. stand in truth regardless of how people feel about it <laughs> and regardless yeah. of whether it's even the best decision for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there is something about it that leads me back to my heart and to being human every single time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, those were probably the two most impactful books besides r- the women who run with the wolves, which... I read several times last year as well. So (laughs) I guess that was three. (laughs) Okay. You really cheated now. I did. (laughs) You know, I'm a type A. We don't always follow directions. (laughs) I love it. Um, Okay. And then last question. What is a piece of advice that has really stuck with you? I love this question. Um. I heard this at a conference when I was still in higher ed and I still lived in Florida. So probably 2013, 2014. And um, Lua Hancock was giving a keynote and she says, don't make a decision until a decision, there's a decision to be made. Um, and cause I could overthink whew, mm. every, anything 
Uh, every, I mean, everything, literally everything. <laughs> I'm an overthinker by nature. Mm-hmm. And when she said that, there was this permission that I didn't know that I needed mm. to be given to just chill the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. And it has stuck with me when I get overthinking, when I really get into my head, it just helps me stay in the moment yeah, and not just run off to the future in some way. Mm-hmm. So then, I guess this is another question. Are you? Do you find yourself to be very decisive in general? Mm-hmm. But you just overthink first. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That's such good advice. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's. I am decisive and I overthink. It's like this. This. Uh, I think the more. The more work I've done, the more I'm thoughtful I am about what I overthink. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think, too, like, um, being raised in church, there was so much around, like, making the right decision and am I in God's will. Oh, yeah. So there was just so much anxiety that I had um, in, yes. those, in those years that there was so much overthinking. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a whole nother podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much for being here. Um, I've done a few of these recordings so far. I haven't laughed as much in any of them. So thank you for that. And thank you for bringing all your wisdom and brilliance. Really appreciate you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Enneagram IRL. If you loved the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. This is the easiest way to make sure new people find the show. And it's so helpful for a new podcast like this one. If you want to stay connected, sign up for my email list in the show notes or message me on Instagram at nine types co to tell me your one big takeaway from today's show. I'd love to hear from you. I know there are a million podcasts you could have been listening to, and I feel so grateful that you chose to spend this time with me. Can't wait to meet you right back here for another episode of Enneagram IRL very soon. The Enneagram in Real Life podcast is a production of Nine Types Co. LLC. It's created and produced by Stephanie Baron Hall with editing support from Brandon Hall and additional support from Crits Collaborations. Thanks to Dr. Dreamship for our amazing theme song, and you can also check out all of their music on Spotify.